0: We have been spending our time in the book of Exodus and this is God's picture book of redemption. I cannot tell you how excited I am to look at this chapter with you. This is a mind-blowing chapter and I just cannot believe the massive New Testament implications that are found here in Exodus 24. And we have seen in our study of the book of Exodus... And this book is not only telling Israel's story about how God redeemed them, making them His own people, but this book is showing how God was going to redeem the true people of Israel in the future and make them His own people. To remind us of our context at this point, we have the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, that God has spoken the Ten Commandments to the people. After God speaks those Ten Commandments, the people then tell Moses... Don't let God do that again. Uh, You go before God. You hear what He has to tell us, and you tell it to us, and we will do all that God tells you to Him. And so they tell Moses to do that, and then for chapters 21 through 23, we are given the rest of the laws that, that are given here at Mount Sinai, really the applications and the details of the Ten Commandments. And then Moses comes back down the mountain and begins to express it to the people. This These laws are called the Book of the Covenant, which we're going to see here now in chapter 24. And so, in seeing then what God is going to do in bringing these people into a beautiful covenant now at the moment we're going to get an amazing picture of how God brings his people into covenant when we come into Christ and the New Testament so let's look at these things notice now the first two verses of chapter 24 of the book of Exodus Exodus 24 verse 1 Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Just a beginning point here is this is a preparation scene for worship that is about to begin. And I want you to see the boundaries that are laid out. What we have now is God says, okay, I want Moses, I want Aaron, I want Nadab and Abihu. Now, Nadab and Abihu are two of Aaron's sons. And so they, along with the 70 elders of Israel, he says, I want you to come up on the mountain. And they're going to be able to worship from afar on the mountain. However, Moses, he alone is allowed to come near to God. So the 70 elders, plus Aaron, plus Nadab and Abihu, now you can come up on the mountain, and Moses is going to be able to go up to God himself. And already you are getting a message before this all happens, because this hasn't happened yet, it's just the directions. Here's what's going to happen about the 70 elders, Nadab and Abihu, and Aaron and Moses. And notice that we're already getting a message here that only Moses can come near. The others are going to worship. But only Moses is going to be able to draw near. And we have seen not only in the study of Exodus, we've seen it in our study of the Gospel of John a few years ago. We have seen it in a number of places when we studied the book of Isaiah. Over and over again, we are given this picture that Moses is a type for Christ is that Moses is the deliverer and savior of Israel. He is the rescuer designated by God. And so we're seeing in what Moses is able to do pictures of what Christ is going to be able to do as well. And already we are setting the table in preparation for worship is that there is one who is going to be able to go all the way up into the presence of God. There is one who can draw near, and that is Moses. And this new Moses figure in the future, when Christ comes, he is going to have such a relationship with God that he is able to draw near and come close to Him. And so you're getting this foreshadowing of things to come. Now watch how this is all going to play out and why this is possible. Verse 3, "...Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules." And all the people answered with one voice and said, "'All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do.' And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. An amazing scene lays out here is first you have Moses coming down and he tells all the people, here's what God said. Basically, you told me to go to God and get the message. After the Ten Commandments were spoken and the people said, we cannot bear to be in front of the Lord and hear Him speak anymore because we are going to die if we hear Him speak like that again. And so Moses now comes down from the mountain with the message of God and says, here's what the Lord has said. And the people say... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They commit to the covenant. They say, we will do everything that God has required us to do. What in chapter 21, 22, 23? We will do all the things that God has told us to do. And now the next steps that lay out before us are the ratification of the covenant. You'll notice that in verse 4, Moses now writes down all the words that the Lord has said. He records all of them, and after he records all of them, he's going to speak those words to them and offer these covenant sacrifices. So now the sacrifices are made, peace offerings and burnt offerings are done, the book of the covenant is made, and then you'll notice with the offerings, there is this interesting symbolism. Did you notice that there is an altar and there are 12 pillars? And we are specifically told that this represents the nation of Israel. Verse 4, the 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So here is an altar, and here are the 12 pillars representing Israel. And God is representing the altar, the people of Israel by their tribe represented before the altar. These sacrifices are made. Moses takes the blood, and he begins by throwing the blood against the altar. The blood is thrown on that. Violent word there. It doesn't say sprinkled. It's actually just thrown. It's violently thrown against. And just imagine the mess of this altar. It's the blood. has just being thrown against it. Thrown against it. Thrown against it. And after the blood now is thrown against the altar. Here's God's end of the covenant. The blood is against the altar. Moses now reads the book of the covenant again. He's already told them. Here's what God says. Then he writes it down. The blood's thrown against the altar. And now Moses stands before the people one more time and reads the book of the covenant to them. And the response of the people is all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And then did you notice what happens next in verse 8? He takes what's left of the blood in the basins and he throws it on the people and says, behold... This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the ratification of the covenant now between God and the people. Here are the stipulations of the covenant. And the blood is cast against the altar representing God's end of the covenant. The blood is now thrown upon the people because they have said, we will keep the covenant. We will obey. We will do all that God has said. The blood now is thrown upon them. And now Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. This has now been ratified. You are now in covenant with God and you will do all the things that God has called you to do. One of the big pictures, not only in the book of Exodus, but is a huge picture throughout the scriptures, throughout Genesis, all the way to the very end of the scriptures, is that blood is the basis of a relationship with God. This is a point that is made over and over and over again is if we are going to be in a relationship with God, there is the necessity of blood, that the people need to be purified and here in this, this throwing of the blood upon the people, it is a picture not only of their purification, but it's also a picture of them belonging to God. You are now in covenant relationship with God and the blood has been put upon you to show that you are now tied to Him. Blood on the altar, blood on the people. We are now in covenant. We are now joined together in this relationship. And the first big significance about that is I want you to consider how often the New Testament emphasizes about our relationship with God is through the blood of Christ. You know, sometimes we define that as simply that Christ died, true. But there is a greater imagery here that blood is required for fellowship and the Scriptures again and again say rather than it being the blood of animals that is being used at this moment, it is going to be the blood of the precious Son of Jesus Himself that will be the means by which we can come into covenant relationship with Him. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The writer of Hebrews is conjuring this very scene is that this time when the covenant was ratified, this time when bringing people into relationship with God, it wasn't going to be through animal blood. It was the blood of His own Son. And here is Jesus in this picture coming before the very throne of God. It's not an altar on earth by which blood comes into into contact there. But here is Jesus visualized carrying in the basin His own blood into the very holy place of God and by using that blood securing eternal redemption for all who belong to him this is why the scriptures over and over again use it I, I'm only picking out three we could like spend hours Romans three twenty two. for there's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified how by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive His seed by faith. It required His blood. For us to be able to enter into covenant relationship. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. How much more than shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Over and over again the New Testament just underscores it's by his blood. It's by his blood. Animals are insufficient. We needed the blood of a perfect sacrifice. We need the, the blood of God himself to be the means by which that we could enter into relationship. In fact, the New Testament uses this imagery of being sprinkled with blood in quite a few places. Perhaps the most dramatic is how Peter opens his letter. First letter that he writes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now watch. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is a direct allusion to Exodus 24. He notices he is writing to the elect. The elect exiles who are in all of these different regions. And what is he described about them? He says, alright, according to the foreknowledge of God, that's how you are elect. According to sanctification of the Spirit, that's how you're elect. And notice, why else are you elect? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood. What did the people say before they were sprinkled with blood in Exodus 24? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will obey his words. And then Moses takes the blood and throws it on the people. Notice Peter opens his letter by saying, that's you. That the blood of Christ has been thrown upon you for your sanctification, for you to be in relationship with him, for your obedience to the son. This is a picture of us in this moment as we come into relationship with Him that we have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And through that are able to enjoy the great relationship that we have with Him. The suffering servant text said that was going to happen. Isaiah's prophecy. We often start in Isaiah 53, terrible chapter break, one of the worst the suffering servant song begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and continues all the way through 53. 52.13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Watch it. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that's which they have not heard, of, they understand. Notice this picture of the suffering servant's going to come, and he's going to be a- appalling to the people. They're going to look at him and go, What is this? But he is going to be high and lifted up. Here's the picture of the cross. He is going to come to his death. And yet, what's it going to accomplish? The sprinkling of the nations. To allow the nations to come into covenant relationship. They're going to be sprinkled by his blood. And they're going to enter into fellowship and enter into covenant. That's why chapter 53, the next verse is chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because the whole point there is, Israel rejects this message. But notice it is the nations, the kings, the Gentiles. They have not been told, but they will see They will be sprinkled. They will come into fellowship. They are going to enjoy this. And how often in the gospel of John does Jesus tell us that when was he going to be glorified? When he's raised up on the cross, that that'd be his glorification. That all men will come to him through that very moment. Okay. And that's not even the cool part. (laughs) Now look at verse nine. Verse nine. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Whoa. This is absolutely unbelievable what happens now. They saw God. Now, let's just back up to what we've seen in this scene. Exodus chapter 19. God tells Moses, I'm going to come down on this mountain And nobody better touch it. Nobody can come near. Nobody can be on the mountain. Nobody should come near the mountain. Animals should not come near the mountain. Nobody touch the mountain. Put up a barrier around the mountain. Don't come near the mountain or you're going to die. God was so serious about that. When Moses does come up to get the final instructions, the first thing God says is, don't let the people touch the mountain. And now all of a sudden... In chapter 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders go up the mountain. If I'm one of those people, I'm I'm like, (laughs) is this going to be okay? You said don't touch the mountain. Don't come near it. And now we are allowed to go on the mountain to worship? Now we can draw near? Now we can enjoy this? What should have been fatal at that moment is now a blessing. And how is this possible? Because of the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant has now been enacted. And now the people can come on the mountain. Now these 70, Nadab and Abihu and Moses and Aaron. Now they are allowed to come up onto the mountain. And now they are able to worship. And I want you just to see that even the text itself is trying to show you how amazing it is. Notice verse 11 again. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. When you read that these 74 men plus Moses go on the mountain, you are reading it going, look out. It's over for them. It's going to be French fry time and they are going to be cooked. And notice verse 11 says, no. God didn't lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel and then underscores it again they saw god and ate and drank now what's the significance of this it's quite deep first very vast just amazing meals were typically a means of ratifying covenants a good example of that genesis with isaac We're going to confirm a covenant, an agreement that we have made two kings, one with another. We sit down and we will have a feast. We will have a banquet. We will have a common meal together. And that's part of the picture of what is being displayed here in terms of this covenant relationship. As they come up onto the mountain and they see God and they eat and drink is that we have a confirming of the covenant. We are now in fellowship. We are joined together. We are now connected which we understand that even in terms of the eating of meals together in ancient Near Eastern times as well as in the first century and even still somewhat in our culture. It is a picture of fellowship, a picture of friendship, a picture of relationship together. It's what makes what Judas does so devastating. This is what the Old Testament's predicting: predicting. Here is this one who is my closest friend, the one who is eating a meal with me is my very betrayer. The one who would be my closest friend. That's, that's what Jesus would say. The one who is eating this meal and dipping the bread and handing it to this is the ultimate of insults. That here is somebody who is to be my closest friend, yet becomes my betrayer. The eating together is a symbol of relationship. A symbol of friendship. A symbol of communion together. And the picture here is that now these people, Israel are now in communion with God. And there is an acceptance of the covenant together. I want you to think about how often you see in the New Testament these images of a fellowship meal. How many parables does Jesus tell that the people are banqueting with God? that there are these feasts that are occurring. And who are the people who are allowed to believe in the feast and enjoy the great banquet and all that comes with it? Over and over again, Jesus tells parables where the physical nation of Israel is making all these excuses and are not going to enjoy the meal, but who is going to enjoy it? Outsiders, outcasts, Sinners, all of these different kinds of people. People that you would never expect are the ones who are allowed to enjoy the wedding banquet, to enjoy the feast, to come to the fellowship table of God. In fact, if you remember, one of the gospel accounts talks about The eternal punishment is described in terms of seeing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and they are feasting and banqueting with God and you are left out. There is a full of these New Testament images of God is going to banquet and feast with his people. In fact, in the feeding of the 5,000, John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 is amazing because not only is it just simply the feeding of the 5,000, but the backdrop of it is the Passover. The whole Exodus scene is here of the 5,000 and they sit down and who are they eating and drinking with? God. They are sitting and eating and drinking with God right there in their very midst, right there at the very front, right in front of them. Think about how often Jesus is criticized because who is God going in and eating with? The outcasts, the tax collectors, the sinners. Zacchaeus becomes a notorious example of it, doesn't he? Here's Zacchaeus. The people can't stand him. Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house. All the people, what are you talking about? You cannot go to his house. But notice the imagery. God eating and drinking with tax collectors, sinners, outcasts. He's having a covenant meal, a fellowship meal with them. Over and over again, these pictures are being given that the hope is to be able to see God and to eat and drink with Him. To have this communion with Him. To have this fellowship with Him. That we are able to be in the presence of God and we are able to sit down and have a meal with Him. Now, when you read verse 8, if you've been a Christian for very long, your radar should have gone up. Because Moses throws the blood on the people. And what does he say? Behold the blood of the covenant. And you may recognize that every account in the New Testament. Matthews, Marks, Luke's, and 1 Corinthians. John doesn't have the Lord's Supper account. Four accounts of it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians. All of them call the second part of the Lord's Supper, the fruit of the vine, the blood of the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, or this is the blood of the covenant. Said one way or the other, in all four accounts. He is quoting Exodus 24 kind of language. Here's Matthew twenty-six twenty-six. Now, as they were eating, notice there is this, Fellowship meal, Jesus and his disciples. While they are eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and after when he when had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Here is Jesus resonating Exodus 24 language and saying, this is the blood of the covenant. What you are partaking in is the blood of the covenant. What I want us to see is that the Lord's Supper is reflecting a picture of this communion meal with us and God showing that we are in covenant with him. The blood of the covenant is a declaration to do all the Lord has said. We will obey all that you have said. Then what happens? Blood sprinkled. What does Moses say? This is the blood of the covenant. You have agreed to the terms of the covenant to do all that God has said. And this is the picture of what is happening in the Lord's Supper is our declaration to God. We are in covenant with you. We will do what you have said. We understand our obligations of the covenant and we are coming to you in that way. It is a reflection of the blood of Jesus sprinkled on us so that we are purified and sealed as His people. You might remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ and the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Here is this fellowship meal, communion, participation imagery. Don't you know that's what it is? Let me just take a break right here and just make a point. How dare we ever take the Lord's Supper as some kind of sacrament or act of worship that you just get through? How dare we? You understand why Paul speaks of significance in 1 Corinthians 11 about the judgment of what they had fallen upon them for what they were doing and just turning into a common meal eating and drinking as they want and just doing whatever they please. There is seriousness to this. This is the blood of the covenant. This is a picture of being in covenant with God that you are sealed to Him. That His blood has been sprinkled upon you. That you will do all that is written in the book. And we are remembering that that is the blood of Christ by which we've been saved. In fact, I hope that you will notice over this last year we have done a lot of different lessons on the Lord's Supper By accident in a lot of ways. And I hope that you are seeing how many layers there are to the Lord's Supper. I've been blown away at how many different places I will come to a a teaching, a command or a picture of this Lord's Supper that gives yet another window into what is going on and why this is so significant. In the Lord's Supper, we're remembering, of course, the sacrifice and the death of Christ. We've talked about that with the bread, the bread representing his body, the body that was given for us, his sacrifice, his death, all that he gives for us. That is all being pictured. We've talked about the picture of resurrection is also tied to it. what a wonderful hope that there is that if Jesus stays in the grave and never rises, there is no hope. There must be resurrection and we are remembering not only the sadness of his death, but also it is the resurrection that brings us into new covenant with him so that now we can be in this great relationship with him forgiven. We remember that the forgiveness of sins is only accomplished by the shedding of his blood. By the way, there's one other place where the blood of the covenant is used term in the New Testament besides those four places with the Lord's Supper. Hebrews 9, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And here is this idea of the blood of the covenant is used right there. This is what Moses was saying. They were now in relationship. You are now belonging to him. And so we remember that a new covenant has been established in his blood. And now we are layering on yet another image that the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us each week that we are sealed into a covenant relationship with God, that now we can be friends of God, and now we have access to God, and we are able to enjoy all of the privileges that come. We have spent some time in the book of Exodus and noted that there is this amazing picture because what you have happening here is Here we have come to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai was inaccessible. Do not come near or die. So frightful was the scene that the writer of Hebrews records even Moses said. He is terrified of what was happening at that moment. Moses receives the law, proclaims it to the people, writes it down in a book. The sacrifice is made, the blood of animals, peace offerings and burnt offerings. The blood from those offerings are cast before the altar. The words of the book of the covenant are declared to the people again. And the people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The blood then is sprinkled and thrown upon the people. And the very next scene is that the 70 elders of Israel Nadab and Abihu, Moses and Aaron, go on the mountain and they see God and eat and drink with Him. We shouldn't be on the mountain, but because of the blood of the covenant, we can go up the mountain, Mount Zion see God and eat and drink with Him. We should be far away. We are unholy. We are not worthy. God has pictured it again and again. I am so holy you cannot come near. And yet God provides the means to answer the problem. Have you thought about that? Did it strike you ironic? When the book of the covenant is declared all of the people say we will do all that the lord has said help that go we will obey everything he said you know we're not going to get very far in this story and that's not going to go too well in fact many of you know this generation isn't even going to enjoy what God is promising because of their disobedience. They're going to fall in the wilderness for that. The blood of the covenant meets the problem of the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant says, do this. Okay. You know, all of us, we're ready to go. Let's do it. And immediately all of us have a problem. We aren't going to do all that God has said we ought to do. The blood of the covenant is needed to purify us, to keep us in relationship with him. And what is so amazing is that God is the provider of that blood. What God does is he says, I will send my son. And through his blood, you can be in relationship with God. You can have fellowship with God that we can enjoy access to God, that we can come to Mount Zion and enjoy all the privileges that come from being children of God because of the blood of the covenant that has been given to us. That's what Exodus 24 was picturing. Is one day there'd be such a great sacrifice that would take care of our covenantal problem so that we could stay in fellowship with our God. And let it always then just resonate in our ears every time we come into the New Testament and it just says that we're justified by His blood or that we have a relationship through His blood or we have peace through His blood. That all of this is echoing the book of Exodus. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper on Sunday, let it just be one more dimension Amongst many dimensions that we've seen in this beautiful memorial that we get to take. Yet another reminder that what we are remembering is that we can now have covenant access and fellowship with God. That we only can have because of the blood of Jesus. We'll sing imitation song now and we invite you to come to Jesus this very night to see the beauty of what God has done for us in sending His Son to die for us so that we could have fellowship, that we could have access. And friends, you know what we are longing for, if I can just bring in all that we've done in First Thessalonians for a minute, is that one day we are going to see God and sit down and enjoy that fellowship meal with Him. In that spiritual sense. What we are longing for is that very moment. To see God. And to be with Him. Full access. Exodus 24. Pictured. What a beautiful thing it's going to be. Will you turn away from your sins and come to Christ. So that you can enjoy those blessings. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. To enter that relationship with Him. And become a child of His. Won't you come now while we stand. And while we sing.